This is Live Well Talk on Mental Health, taking care of the entire you. I'm Dr. Dustin Arnold, Chief Medical Officer at Unity Point Health St. Luke's Hospital. For years, physicians have treated patients for their physical health, yet mental health is just as important. Joining me to talk about this topic today is Dr. Melissa Kaler from Unity Point Clinic Family Medicine Westdale. That's a long title to say. Do you say that every day you go to work, that you're Dr. Melissa Kaler from Unity Point Family Medicine Westdale? I mean, no, I don't. That's a big title. <laughs> uh, thanks for taking the time to talk about this. Welcome. Thanks for having me. This is a, a, a moot question, but tell us, tell us why mental health is just as important as physical health. There are lots of reasons. I mean, we know our brains and bodies right. are so interconnected, you really can't treat one without treating the other. We know that patients with mental health concerns have a higher risk of chronic physical disease and also vice versa. We know that patients with chronic heart disease, diabetes, who've had a stroke, that they're at higher risk for having mental health disease also. So they're very intertwined. You know, I'm a big advocate for mental health. Yeah, I, I think it's unfortunate. You know, we do not stigmatize people if they require insulin for their diabetes. Then why are we, we have a tendency to uh, uh, stigmatize patients that require an antidepressant for their depression. And I don't think we should. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll talk about more of that a little bit later as well. The mental health issue it obviously influences physical health to a significant degree. That's, that's, that's understandable. But what percentage of your patients do you think have a component of chronic, a, a diagnosis of mental health? So we know that over a lifetime, probably about 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental health illness. I mean, I treat it in my practice every day. I would hate to throw out a number, but I mean, I would say at least 20% of my patients on a daily basis have either have a current diagnosis or have had within the last few years of some sort of mental health illness. Do you find patients reluctant to talk about it? Do they talk about other things uh, that perhaps reflect mental health, but uh, let me think of something here that maybe fatigue, maybe they, uh, which really fatigue, it's not really fatigue, it's loss of interest and in, in apathy in some way. Is that, is that how it sublimely presents in the clinic? Oftentimes. And I think, you know, things with like fatigue or other kind of vague symptoms, people just don't realize that that really is and can be a symptom of underlying mental health illness. And I, I think that the reluctancy of people to be labeled a mental illness does lead to perhaps indirect increase utilization of healthcare that is not being used appropriately. For example, the we don't we don't see it very often in this community, which is a good thing. But the schizophrenic homeless patient that if we were just treating their schizophrenia well, we wouldn't have to treat their pneumonias that they acquire or the, you know, the hypothermia they acquire from being homeless, you know, so that there is, a, there is a, a, an influence there. Do you always start out with a medication when a patient presents, they have symptoms of uh, depression, let's say? Do you start with a medication first? Is it always a pill? It is not always a pill. Um, I mean, we know that there's lots of different ways to treat it. So I usually kind of start out talking about, you know, a healthy lifestyle because we know healthy lifestyle influences our mental health as well. So getting enough sleep, eating healthy, exercising regularly. Um, those are all things that can help our brains too. And then I often talk about counseling and or medication, you know, if symptoms are not controlled or if they're significant enough that we need some other treatment. And is it in, in a primary care practice, Dr. Kaler, is it mostly depression that you see or adjustment disorder, et cetera? I mean, I, I don't think 
paranoid schizophrenia is walking in your clinic on a normal day. It will. I mean, it, it, I'm sure you have had that happen, but that's not as not common. as common. Yeah. So most of what I treat is depression, um, anxiety disorders, ADHD um, is considered mental health too. So we treat quite a bit of that. PTSD and eating disorders. I mean, I would say those are kind of my the top ones, but mostly depression and anxiety. Have you observed some stigma that patients maybe have related to you that they've they've experienced because they have mental health? Definitely. Disease. Yeah. I think patients feel alone or lonely. They feel like if they talk to their parents or their friends or their spouse about it, that they'll think they're crazy or not normal. I mean, to which I tell patients, no one, everyone's a little bit crazy and no one's normal. You know, this, this is our normal. But yeah, I see a lot of, a lot of stigma. It's interesting. I have a friend that is, he's a surgeon, but when he was in medical school, he had just this really bad case of hiccups and they used Thorazine, which he can use, right? And he had a dystonic reaction from it. So his chart said allergy Thorazine, which is a medication used to treat bipolar disorder and, and significant mental illness. So that was on the old paper chart. And it, he, he felt he was treated differently until he would explain, no, I'm allergic to Thorazine because they used it for hiccups. I do not. It, but he said the, 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 the way that he could perceive the clinician treating differently when they, on the first encounter because of that. And once that was cleared up, it was, it, was, it was a different experience, which I find that really enlightening that perhaps as physicians also, even though we're advocates, even though we know it should be treated, that perhaps we have our own internal bias or uh, prejudgment on these conditions, and you, you have to fight against that. Is that something that you've experienced? I hope we don't. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, even since I've done my training 12 to 15 years ago, I think we're talking about it more. We realize that it's a more common condition than you know what we've previously realized. And I, I mean, I feel really comfortable talking about it. That's great. Yeah. I think you know, they'll say that we're tr- the the cases of just let's say mental illness are going up. It's trending up the incidence. I hope part of that is no more people are getting coming forward and getting treated. It's really the same number of people have it. It's just. More, more of those patients are being treated I agree. in the yeah. past, I, which I, I hope that's true. What are some common medications that you've used? And when you start those medications, how long does it take to see a response? I mean, certainly it's not a happy pill where you take it and you feel better the next day, but uh, what, is, what is your, in your judgment, how long should a patient be on a medication where you expect to see a change? So generally our first line of medications for both depression and anxiety are SSRIs, and there's six to eight ones that we use pretty regularly. And you're right. I mean, I tell patients, even though you you really want to feel better tomorrow or the next day, this is going to take a while. It works on the chemical level in your brain. Um, So over four weeks where you should be noticing some change. And by six weeks, we should be noticing kind of the full effects of the medication. Do you then continue that for a period of time? So do you, um, let me, how do I want to phrase this? Okay, if I get put on a medication for mental health, am I on it the rest of my life? Or is there, is there a time in the future where you might reassess that and try coming off of it and see how they do? Definitely. So especially if it's the first time it's been diagnosed and treated, um, usually I'll tell patients we should stay on this for six months to 12 months and then kind of take a look at it. You know, if there's no big stressors going on, if life is pretty stable, you're feeling really well, we can taper off of it and see how it goes. If people need to be on it subsequent times, usually by the third time or so, you know, I would tell a patient, you're probably just going to feel better on it. And at that point, I would just recommend that we just stay on it long term. 
yeah, I, I guess, you know, the, the, I can remember a time when it was essentially Prozac was the only SSRI. And, you know, now we have a selection of them. The side effect profiles have become smaller, which is, which is a benefit. Unless I, I do know that my psychiatry colleagues, when the newer antipsychotics came out that had less side effects, the paranoid patients thought they were given, being given sugar pills because their side effects went away. So they knew when they took their old medication, hey. That it was th- working. Right. You know, yeah. So they knew, hey, I have to take my medication because if I don't, I'm going to decompensate. But then they get this new medication and they don't have the same side effects. They're like, oh my gosh, someone's exchanging my pills. So, you know, so sometimes uh, uh, when we try to make things better, there are unintended consequences of that. I'm going to go on a limb here and say family medicine you probably provide a lot of mental health because we have a deficit of psychiatrists. Yes, we do. Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like that's a big part of my practice and I'm, I feel like I'm also pretty passionate about it. So I probably kind of have more of that patient population, but I think all of us treat it a lot. That's, that's understandable. And, and, you know, I think St. Luke's Unity Point Health, we lead the one of the leaders in the state as far as mental illness. We have our partnership with the Abbey Center. Right. I, at one time, and I think we're still there, we were only like two or three beds away from being the largest mental health care provider inpatient side in the state. Uh, I think one of the uh, Cherokee may have like two beds more than us. You know, So some of those big institutions that, that, that exist in the past are, are, are gone. You know, the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which you know, that kind of set that was not an inspirational movie from that standpoint because they, they stigmatize mental health and, right. and, and mental health hospitals, uh, which, you know, when you see the homeless population and some of the bigger cities grow, you wonder is how much of this is mental illness. And if we were just treating their mental illness health, that, that would be less. What, do, what advice do you have for the patient that might feel, I don't know how to phrase this, but sometimes I think patients confuse that and they're not, they're having anxious symptoms, but they're depressed. They don't have anxiety. How do you sort through that in your practice? That's a good question. And I think sometimes anxiety can cause depression or vice versa. So sometimes we see both of them together. The good thing is that they're both treated in about the same way. We okay. treat them both, both with SSRIs. We also, I also do a couple of different screening questionnaires with patients pretty frequently. So all patients that come into our clinic once a year, they have a screening questionnaire called the PHQ-2. So that's a screening for depression. Um, And it asks, the two questions are, over the last two weeks, have you felt depressed, down, or hopeless? And the second question is, um, over the last two weeks, have you had little interest or pleasure in things that you normally would enjoy? So everybody gets that who walks into our clinic, which I think is also good for stigma. Um, if people answer those questions, they know that it's a safe place to talk about these things, that um, if they answer positively, there's, we do the longer questionnaire with them. So the longer questionnaire is called the PHQ-9, and it has more symptoms of depression. Um, and there's also another questionnaire that I often will do if there's not a previous diagnosis called the GAD-7, which is a seven-question, um, more about anxiety symptoms. So often it's interesting to do both of those and look at those scores side by side. I would say often people have some symptoms of both, both. and maybe don't realize. They overlap. Yeah. The, the classic one that I've seen, uh, usually, usually friends, because we're getting to this age, is the 55-year-old that w- worked out their whole career. You know, they're, they have a lot high-stress job, but they work out. They get 55, their knee gets replaced, and now they, they don't play racquetball anymore. 
And all of a sudden they developed this symptoms of anxiety. And you know, I reassured them to say, they're like, why is this happening to me now? Well, it was probably happening to you your whole life. It's just you were treating it with exercise and the release of endorphins. Right. And, you know, and now that, that that's changed and, and, and that can be happening. And, and it can be frustrating for, I think, patients feel, why is this happening to me now? What, you know, and, and, and they start off with that stigma as well. What did I do? That what it what it how did, how did this happen? Well, nothing happened. You know, you just right. it's it's okay to have a, a mental illness. And I reassure patients all the time. You know, this is not something you've caused. This is not something you've done. You know, some of it is situational and stressors, and some of it is genetic, and some of it's a chemical imbalance in your brain. There's so many different things that can cause this. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It just means we need to get you feeling better. I, I think I would fail that questionnaire uh, for about the. Five days after every time Notre Dame loses a football game, <laughs> so so at least it's just five days, and okay, not so most I, over so, the last so two I weeks. I, I, I don't, I haven't reached the threshold of the medication right. yet, right? Okay, all right, that's good. So, do you always recommend counseling with the medication, or do they go hand in hand? Or sometimes you say the medication and follow-ups with you can treat this, and we don't need a counselor. I almost always recommend counseling along with medication. And some people are very open to that and some not, in which case, you know, we'll start medication and follow up and see how things are going. Um, and I think there's kind of that stigma with counseling, too. Like, you know, I don't, I don't need to see a counselor. I don't need to talk about it. Um, but our brains are so complex in how we process things and, um, you know, our self-talk that I just, we know that counseling helps and we know that medication helps and we know that both together is more help than one or the other by themselves. I know people have this question. Let's say you have a family member that dies, and you obviously there's a grieving process there. At what, what point would a patient or a person say, you know, this is, this is pathologic, I, it's gone? How, how, would we, how would someone differentiate that? It can be tough. I mean, we always kind of give them the short term to grieve. I mean, functioning in daily life is not going to be the same. But I would say if that persists, like especially if they're not going to work or not doing things that they would normally do on a daily basis, and that's when we really need to look at other treatment and maybe it's starting to get in the way. Is there a time in there? I, I, I recall like, like if it's less than six months, it's not uh, something you need to intervene on. But then I've always thought, well, why do we want this patient to suffer for six months? Let's treat it now. Yeah, there's not a specific time frame well, that I usually kind of go by. It's really just how they're functioning. What about postpartum depression? Do you see a lot of that? We do. And I, I mean, I think... We're seeing more of that, too, because we're asking about it and because we're kind of looking for it. But, yeah, we know that that's pretty common also. And, you know, I don't see, I don't deliver babies, but I do see the babies in follow-up. So we always take time to ask mom how she's doing um, and follow up on that, too. I think that's a condition that's overlooked or, or uh, explained away, perhaps, yeah. might be the, the, the way to handle that. So we, we talked about counseling. Where, where do I go for counseling? I mean, I don't see, uh, you know, you, you don't see billboards with counseling uh, advertisements. But So what, tell us what services you use or resources you use for that. Yeah, so there's lots of different resources. We now have a counselor in our office three full days a week. And I know a lot of the Unity Point clinics have somebody there at least part-time. So I think that makes it really easy for patients. They're already comfortable coming in our office. Um, they can schedule with her just like they would schedule with me, you know, with our same schedulers. So there's not kind of that different, you have to make a different call or go to a different place. Um, so that's been a really great asset for us. 
We also are associated with Abbey Center, so um, they have walk-in hours where you can speak with the nurse triage and get set up with a counselor there. The the um, counseling, how often is that? Is it? So it really depends. Okay. I mean, some people it's once a week, at least kind of acutely. Um, some people it's once a month. Um, so it really varies on on what services and we're do you, needing. Do you make that referral like I would make to physical therapy to say see and treat? You know, see the patient, develop a treatment plan. No. Okay. Um, usually you don't need a referral from us for counseling. Um, so we would give them the phone number or the hours to stop in at the Abbey Center. Um, but then they're kind of on their own to make that. Um, if I do see a patient in my clinic and we're getting them set up with our counselor, I can put, you know, on their checkout to schedule an appointment with her, which is pretty handy. You know, when we started, uh, we talked about mental health advocacy and the Make It Okay campaign to, to reduce that stigma. Is coming up. Can you just? I know you're. Uh, you, you mentioned that you're on the leadership panel for that. Can you talk a little bit about the Make It Okay campaign? Yeah. So it's it's just about mental health awareness um, and just making it okay to talk about it and to get it treated and you know so you can feel so you can be your best and you can feel the best that you can feel. Um, I've also noticed just recently, maybe it's because I'm on this committee and so I'm a little more aware. I've seen posters up in my kids' schools. And just community-wide, not necessarily about this campaign, but about mental health resources that are out there. So I think we're getting better as a community and as providers of talking about it and making it okay. So this campaign will, will hopefully just kind of progress that. Yeah, I, I think directionally we are. And, it, you know, the one I always go back to, and you've probably had some of these patients that, you know, in the 1950s, it was, there was, you didn't talk about someone having cancer. You, you, you know, that was like, yeah. oh, wait, we can't talk about that, you know. And, uh, and, you know, that's gone away. I mean, that that just blows my mind that there was at one time there would you would not talk about something like that. It would be right. like socially uh, taboo to discuss cancer. But but now, you know, I mean, we have all sorts of visibility to cancer and the treatments and the progress we're making. So maybe someday we can hopefully feel that mental health will be the same. I agree. Yeah. I read a good story. It was um, after Kate Spade committed suicide a couple years ago. But just read an article about how we have celebrities who have Parkinson's disease or pancreatic cancers, and they're kind of the big cheerleaders and advocates for right. these conditions. But yet celebrities are not saying, hey, I struggle with depression or, hey, I struggle with anxiety and let's make it okay. So hopefully within the next few years, we start to see that too. Well, on some, uh, for physicians, which it, that's a different animal, and, and I admit that ahead of time. You know, there's questionnaires that do you have a mental illness that would impair you from practicing or have you ever been treated for a mental illness? And so right away, it's like, well, you know, and so you wonder about the trepidation to, to get assistance when you might have to fill out a questionnaire, be asked that in the future. And, right. and, and who knows how they'll be interpreted, the, the yes. Or I think people just in general might be worried, you know, what if my insurance is going to see this? Yeah. You know, what if that diagnosis is on there too? So... Hopefully those are all barriers that we can overcome. Well, at, like at one time, nicotine dependence was considered a mental health by some insurance carriers. And people complained and it was taken out of the mental. So if you didn't have mental health benefits, then they wouldn't cover nicotine treatment or curtailment and cessation. And then so they, people were complaining because they, they didn't want the stigma of mental health. And I was like, well... We, we just facilitated that stigma by moving it away from that, you know, which is that, yeah, right. it is a mental health. It's, you're addicted to it. And, but instead, it was like, oh, okay, well, we'll move it out of that. And so I think right there was an opportunity for 
medicine and healthcare in general to have held our ground and said, no, we're not going to move it. And there's nothing wrong with having a Right. This is okay. Let's yeah. just treat it. Really great information today. Thanks so much for taking the time uh, to talk about this. Again, that was Dr. Melissa Kaler from Union Point Clinic Family Medicine Westdale. If you have a topic you'd like to suggest for our talk on podcast, shoot us an email at stlukescr at unitypoint.org. We encourage you to tell your family, friends, neighbors, strangers uh, about our podcast. Until next time, be well.